Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Technological advances seem to be accelerating. Every day we hear of something new. Self-driving cars, wearable computers, factory robots, digitized medicine. The list goes on and on. Continuing advances in computers and automation can reduce our workloads, increase productivity, even imbue life with a sense of wonder. But Nicholas Carr, in his new book, The Glass Cage, Automation and Us, says there are hidden costs in granting software dominion over our work and our leisure. Even as these programs bring ease to our lives, he says they're stealing something essential from us. It's not all gloom and doom, though. He says if approached with thought and care, automation can help us complete fulfilling work, understand our environment and place within it, broaden our perspectives. We're going to talk about this on Access Utah today. Nicholas Carr is the author of The Shallows, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, as well as The Big Switch and Does IT Matter? Uh, His article, Is Google Making Us Stupid?, created quite the buzz a few years ago. Uh, His articles and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Wired, New Republic. He uh, writes the widely read blog, Rough Type, and has been writer-in-residence at University of California, Berkeley, executive editor of the Harvard Business Review. And Nicholas Carr is coming to Utah for an appearance as a part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That's on October 17th, 6 p.m., in the Salt Lake Public Library. Nicholas Carr, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Tom. Appreciate you taking the time. Very important uh, subject, of course, uh, and this latest book is getting uh, quite the buzz, as your previous ones have as, as well. I wonder if we could start where you do in the, in the book. Um, uh, a, a fun <laughs> example from your life, your first chapter, you learning to drive uh, with, with, uh, with clutch, with the standard yeah. transmission. I... Uh... This is a, a number of years ago when I got my driver's license. I, I actually first learned in a driver's ed course on an automatic, and then the only car uh, that we had at home that, that was available to me was a standard, a manual. And, of course, uh, I struggled, as, as a lot of us do, to, to master the manual transmission and causes a certain amount of embarrassment when you're initially learning out on the road and you try to stop on a hill and drift back or whatever, or stall out. Um, it, but I slowly, you know, over the course of a week or two, got the hang of it. And, uh, and, but still, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I kind of yearned for an automatic because, uh, at the, you know, it's like the difference between having a dishwasher and washing dishes by hand or something. You want the new thing. You want the thing that makes your life easier. And finally, then a couple of years went by, and I and I got an automatic trans car with an automatic transmission, and at first thought, oh, this is great, you know, I've entered the modern world. But then, uh, then I began to surprisingly enough, uh, you know, to me, I began to miss the manual transmission, the kind of the the engagement you got with with driving, the the pleasure of being more uh, kind of more attached to the to the actual vehicle into the road into the world you went through um so it kind of as i thought as i started writing this book and thought back to that it provided a little lesson about how we often want to unload effort and work and activities only to find that the the effort in the work and the activity actually was pleasurable and, and fulfilling in a way that that being relieved of it is not and of course, it's something you wouldn't admit to, to your friends, right? You, that you you're bored with your automatic transmission. Um, and then you fast forward to the Google Car, and it's it's an interesting juxtaposition uh, because it, it's it's a very good example of uh, of where technology is going, and and 
how we have to think about about this. What if you talk a bit about that? That you know, the Google Car is sort of the ultimate in in where I think automation is going anyway, a driverless car. Yeah, and and I think that juxtaposition between you know a few decades ago having the moving from the manual to the automatic transmission, and then now all of a sudden, or at least a couple of years ago, 2010, Google announced that it had developed a car that could drive in a lot of real-world traffic. And on the one hand, it shows that automation isn't, when you automate a particular activity, uh, you're not, it's not an event that just happens. And, you know, before we used to do it ourselves, and then afterward the machines or the computers do it, it's this, it tends to be this long process. And so the automatic transmission was, was actually part of the automation of, of driving, and, and more and more tasks, anti-lock brakes and all sorts of stuff have, have uh, been turned over to computers and machines. And now, the, now we seem on, a ver- on the verge of actually a car that can drive itself. And, and I think beyond that, giving us insight into the process of automation, the process of handing human activities over to technology, the arrival of the Google car was really a, kind of a staggering uh, technological development, certainly a an incredible engineering feat, but just a few years before uh, the arrival of, uh, of that self-driving car, people would tend to point to driving in traffic as an activity that would remain in human hands. That was just too difficult to program a computer to do because we don't even, it's, one of, it's an example of what psychologists call a tacit skill, something we don't even explicitly understand how we do it ourselves. It's very much a part of uh, something that we learn through experience, and that becomes kind of both a conscious effort and an unconscious effort. Uh, and so it was, it was believed that, you know, that, that was a dividing line between what computers could do and what computers couldn't do. And all of a sudden, we saw that that dividing line that we thought was firmly in place was not firmly in place, and that computers uh, can do a lot of very complex things that we thought that human beings alone would be able to do. Yeah, you, you have this the startling paragraph uh, in in chapter one. Google's car resets the boundary between human and computer. And it does so more dramatically, more decisively than have earlier breakthroughs in programming. It tells us our idea of the limits of automation has always been something of a fiction. We're not as special as we think we are. And then you've, you talked about tacit and explicit knowledge. Here's your sentence. While the distinction between tacit and explicit knowledge remains a useful one in the realm of human psychology, it's lost much of its relevance in discussions of, uh, of automation. Uh, Google Car resets the boundary between human and, and computer. What if you could expand on that? Yeah. So, at, so, so there is this distinction, and it's been a long distinction that people who study our behavior and our, uh, our minds make between tacit knowledge and explicit knowledge. And explicit is the type of thing you can write down, you know, uh, how, to, how to bake a cake. You can put that into a recipe, and then other people can follow the steps precisely. Uh, and they'll be able to bake the same cake. And then there's tacit knowledge, which is the stuff we learn simply by being out in the world and practicing things, you know, catching a fly ball, uh, making a left turn in your car. Uh, and these, these are things that, uh, you know, as I said before, are learned subconsciously, uh, so just can't be broken down into steps. Um, and, of course, software, when you write software, you're breaking a process down into steps. And so it was believed that 
you know, you could automate explicit things, things that you could write down like a recipe or an algorithm in software terms, uh, but it would be very difficult to automate tacit um, types of skills. And the Google car shows that, as a, you know, that that is not always true. But it, it also, it's important to point out that it's not that, uh, that, that the self-driving car is driving in the way that human beings drive. It's still actually following a set of program, a set of steps and algorithm. But what it tells us is that the things that we do unconsciously, the kind of uh, talent that comes from experience, in many cases, if you get enough computer power, if you get enough sensors, if you get a, enough uh, data flowing over connections, you can actually do what we do tacitly, unconsciously, uh, and take that in, and allow a computer to do it explicitly through pure instructions. But of course, the I don't know the problem, the challenge is, as you point out, artificial intelligence is not human intelligence. That's right, and so we can we can program computers to do a lot of things that we used to do, think we could do alone, and it's not just you know. Uh, self-driving cars or self-flying planes, the kind of replication of psychomotor skills that we have, more and more computers are being programmed to take over analytical tasks, intellectual work, judgment-making, decision-making. And so you see it with uh, uh, software programs that help with the diagnosis of diseases for doctors, for instance, or, or ones that automate the discovery of evidence in law firms. You know, it's... Uh, you can, you can program a computer today not only to, quote, unquote, read lots of documents, but to discern relationships uh, between people, uh, people's emotions, the kind of stuff that, that junior lawyers used to spend a lot of time doing. Um, and, and the risk here is that because computers can do these jobs and do them sometimes more quickly than we can, we might begin to, might begin to devalue the unique skills and talents of human beings. Because still in all of these areas, um, we, human beings, people, bring unique talents. We can, we can think about these jobs. We can not only do these jobs, but we can think about them critically. We can think about them conceptually. We bring common sense uh, to our work. Um, we can bring creativity and ingenuity to our work. And so it's very dangerous to make the leap, and unfortunately I think we, we have a tendency to do this, from saying, well, a computer can do this more efficiently, more efficiently so let's let the computer do it. Um, that, if we, if we rush to turn over these kind of subtle skills to computers, simply because they're quicker in some ways, then we begin to erode our own unique talents because we're not practicing them as much, but also we lose that particularly particularly human perspective that can enrich in uh, these kind of jobs, these kind of tasks, and also lead to bigger thoughts about how we might do these, how, how we fit these into a, a bigger picture of the world. So it's, we're, we're at, as we program our computers to do more and more things and more subtle things, we have to be wary about simply saying, let the computer do it. We're going to take a break when we come back more with Nicholas Carr. Nicholas Carr is author of uh, several books, um, uh, all these about uh, technology, their effects in our lives. The Shallows was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. The Big Switch, Does IT Matter? 
And his articles and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Wired, New Republic. His latest book, very interesting book, is called The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. And uh, Nicholas Carr is coming to Utah for an appearance as a part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That's on October 17th at 6 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library, the main library. Uh, when we come back, uh, I'll ask Mr. Carr to uh, tell us uh, about uh, aviation. Uh, he says that uh, where pilots have been for the last several years interacting with automation, that's where the rest of us are going. So there's some lessons here. That's where he gets the uh, title as well, The Glass Cage. Um, and uh, many, much else on uh, technology. Automation and Us is the subtitle. More following the break. Next time on Living on Earth, checking out tiny critters in wetlands at risk from coal dust pollution. These guys cling on to plant matter and they kind of lie in wait and then when a food item comes by it kind of jumps out with its arms and grabs them. Coal trains in nature. That's next time on Living on Earth. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Nicholas Carr. He's a best-selling author of several books, including The Shallows. His latest book is The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. Technological advances are accelerating. Uh, all we have to do is open the paper, look at the headlines. Every day, something new. Self-driving cars, wearable computers, factory robots, digitized medicine. Continuing advances in computers and automation can reduce workloads, increase productivity, even imbue life with a sense of wonder. But Nicholas Carr uh, says there are hidden costs in grinding software dominion over our work and leisure. Even as the programs bring ease to our lives, they're stealing something essential from us. Uh, and he does say that the uh, uh, advantages of modern automation often obscure the long history of our tension with and ambivalence about machines. He says a critical examination of our over-reliance on technology is all the more necessary as our entanglement with computers uh, deepens. Nicholas Carr is coming to Utah for an appearance as a part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That's October 17th, 6 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. We're opening the phone lines here. If you would like to interact with uh, Nicholas Carr, your question or comment, welcome at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Utah Public Radio, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Nicholas Carr, that last point I'd like to begin this segment with, uh, that the advantages of modern auto automation often obscure the long history of our tension with ambivalence about machines. Um, and I don't know, it, it seems like maybe in many of our minds that that battle is over. We've, we've accepted it. We've embraced technology. We're enamored with it, at least. Yeah, we're. I mean, we're we're definitely enamored with it, um, and and for good reason. I, I mean, I, I I offer some reason some reasons I think to be critical about it, what seems to be an over reliance on computers today and how it saps our some of our skills and some of our 
some of our connection with the world. But, of course, we are, human beings are tool makers, and we're tool users, and we have this enormous facility for when we, when we make these things wisely and use them wisely for expanding our horizons, expanding what we can do, expanding what we can see. And so it is exciting, and, and we're right to be excited by technology and enamored by technology. But if you look at, particularly at the history of our relationship with machines since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution a couple of centuries ago, there is this clear ambivalence. On the one hand, we're very enthusiastic, and that sometimes turns into this sort of utopianism that we think, oh, just around the corner, uh, technology is going to take over all work, all effort, all jobs, and uh, that'll somehow free us to for lives of leisure and for thinking big thoughts and being artists or whatever. Uh, and you see this, you know, in everyone from the from Karl Marx to the great economist John Maynard Keynes to artists like Oscar Wilde, uh, they all say these kind of, they all have these utopian visions of, of technology as kind of both taking over but also freeing us. And then, alternatively, you get these very dark visions of uh, technology in the form of robots or computer programs taking over but kind of turning us into slaves or servants uh, or even just annihilating us as they, uh, as they outpace us. So there, there is this tension in society and in, in many individuals about, you know, are these, are these great cr creations of our own hand and our own mind, are they our friends or are they our foes? And this tension still exists today. You have both fear and a great deal of optimism about what's to come. And, and I think putting it in those extremes can itself be a danger because it it, it blinds us to the kind of intricacy of the immediate effects, the day-to-day -day effects of computers and other technologies on our lives, on our work, and how the decisions that we make, human beings, as the designers of these things and the users of these things, are actually the important decisions. It's, it's not some force outside of our control. It's, it, technology is something that we shape all the time and then shapes us and certainly shapes the way we behave and the way we work. And uh, as I began reading the book um, and your warning about over-reliance on, on technology, in the back of my mind I, I was wondering, uh, are, are you going to talk about the Luddites? And, and indeed you do. Uh, here, here's a quote. Uh, Out of ignorance or laziness or timidity, we've turned Luddites into caricatures, emblems of backwardness. And you say the Luddites understood that decisions about technology are also decisions about ways of working and ways of living. Uh, I should hasten to add it, as you would. Uh, you, you know, you're not suggesting we all go out and smash the computers. But uh, but, but there's there's something in the, the warnings that the Luddites did at the beginnings of the, uh, uh, the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, and the, the actual Luddites were a group of weavers and, and uh, knitters, kind of textile craftsmen, in um, in England, in the kind of industrial heartland of England, and they they had built their lives, you know, around their craftsmanship. And this was a local industry. There were communities built around this. It was their families <laughs> were 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 kind of, you know, organized around this skill that they had. And so, in the early years of the 19th century machines began to be installed in big factories to do knitting and weaving and making cloth and making 
uh, various textiles, and and so they saw it, saw it correctly, by the way, as a threat to their not only their livelihoods but to their lives, their ways of life, and they reacted by going out, you know, at night and going breaking into the factories and smashing these machines, um, and then they were the British army was called out because this turned into quite a rebellion and crushed them. Um, and so today we use, you know, anybody who criticizes technology or raises concerns about computers, you know, will face <laughs> the charge from some quarters of being Luddites, which we've kind of, we've boiled that term down to somebody who simply, re, you know, reacts against all technology. And, and, and actually, and, the, the real story is much more subtle than this. The, as historians make clear, the Luddites were actually not anti-technology. What they were worried about was how the technology would influence their lives and their families' lives. And, and so even if we can you know, criticize them for taking that concern and, and turning to violence, nevertheless, their, their, their own experience offers us some lessons about what we all face when technology begins to take over uh, the work we do, the jobs we do, and even some of our leisure time activities that, we, uh, that give us satisfaction and fulfillment. We're, we're in this constant, this continual period of renegotiating or this continual process of renegotiating the terms of our engagement with the world and the terms of our experience through our technology. And so we need to be very careful uh, as we decide, you know, what what activities, what tasks should we turn over to machines and what activities and tasks are actually important to our lives and to our satisfaction as, as human beings, and perhaps we want to hang on to them even as we use the technology to get the benefits that technology always brings us. We're talking with Nicholas Carr on the program today. His book is The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. And Nicholas Carr is coming to Utah for an appearance as a part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That's on October 17th, 6 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Love to get your perspective. Maybe you have an experience illustrate some of the points we're talking about. Uh, Perhaps you disagree with uh, some of the points here. 1-800-826-1495 is the number. The email is upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess access at gmail.com. You can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Nicholas Carr, you um, you use several examples uh, from the airline industry um, saying that uh, where airline travel has gone and, and is, that, that's along a curve that we're all entering now with regard to, to automation. And this has to do with uh, a danger of over-reliance on automation. I wonder, first of all, if you could uh, recount the story. I think we're all familiar with this Continental Connection commuter flight, uh, 2009, and, and then uh, tell us how that how that relates and how you know over reliance on technology. Yeah. Um, so on, in February of 2009, I think it was um, there was a a routine commuter flight from Newark, New Jersey, to Buffalo, New York. Um, and as is often the case today, as is usually the case today, the, the, the plane took off, the pilots guided the plane through the process of taking off and then switched on the, flight, the various flight automation systems. It's 
much broader now than just autopilots. Pretty much every every task that pilot, human pilots used to do in a plane uh, can now in in airliners be done by computers. And so they switched on the the autopilot system, other flight automation system, and uh, the computers did the flying until they were on their approach to Buffalo. Uh, at which point, um, at which point, they seem to the pilots seem to have. Uh, according to what investigators found after what would turn out to be a crash, uh, had lost their situational awareness, weren't paying close enough attention to what was going on, and the plane uh, began began to go into an aerodynamic stall, began to lose lift. Um, and so a, a warning went off, uh, as is programmed to do, and the autopilot system cut out the, the flight automation stopped working also as it's programmed to do because in those kind of circumstances you want the pilot to take over um, and the pilot did take over but he did exactly the wrong thing um, instead of uh, pushing the control forward the yoke forward uh, so that the plane would descend and gain speed and, and not go into a stall he pulled back on the control uh, lifted the nose of the plane, slowed the plane, and the plane did go into a stall and ultimately crashed. And, and all the people on board were killed, as well as one person in a house in a suburb of, of Buffalo. And that turns out to be, to show us a danger of automation, not only in aviation, but in general. And what we've, what we've learned through lots of studies of what happens when, when we give too much control to the machine, too much control to the, to the computer, the person operating the machine, uh, in this case the pilot, suffers a couple of problems. One is what's called automation complacency. They begin to tune out. We begin to space out because we just assume that the technology will handle is handling the job and we don't have to worry about it. So it's kind of one of our the natural limitations of human attentiveness that when we're not in, actively engaged in a particular chore, particular job, we space out. Um, and then the other problem is automation bias, which is you begin, to, you begin to trust the information coming from the computer to the exclusion of kind of what your own senses tell you and what other information sources tell you. Um, and so when we look at the history of automation in aviation, and this has been going on since before computers, the first autopilot was, was built, invented about 100 years ago, what we see is generally a very good story. Um, as we relieve some of the manual effort that, that uh, pilots had to engage in, uh, they were free to think more clearly about the flying, think about their flight path. And, and, and the general story of flight automation has been one of re uh, reducing the likelihood of accidents, improving safety, and we've all benefited from that. But recently, as we have turned almost the entire flight over to computers, we've begun to see the opposite occur. And the crash in, in Buffalo is one example, and there are several others, unfortunately, that seem to be related to pilots losing their attentiveness and having their skills get rusty from a la lack of practice, and then when they have to take over in an emergency, doing something wrong. Um, and so it's, it shows us, not that automation is bad, certainly we wouldn't want to go back to the time before flight automation, but that you can go too far, that you can take too much responsibility away from the human being, 
And then the very sunny story of, of flights getting safer and safer starts to take a darker turn. And I think it's possible that in, in, in other you know, people who study this agree that if we actually went backwards a little bit and, hand, and required the pilot to be more engaged in the manual activity of flying, um, we might actually make flight even safer than it already is. So you have to watch at every stage of this process, whether it's in aviation or somewhere else, you have to watch for the point at which we give away too much of the job, too much of the effort, and hence begin to lose our own skills. Uh, and it's at that point when, when not only does, does the job get less satisfying, less fulfilling, but it also may introduce dangers into the situation. And you say we're we're all headed in in this direction. We're going to have to all have to grapple with this. Uh, you say as we begin to live our lives inside glass cockpits, we seem fated to discover what pilots already know. A glass cockpit can become a glass cage. That's where you get the title of, of your book. Right, and uh, you know the the metaphor there is if you watch how today many many different people do their work, um, the you know, we seem to be very similar in a way to what pilots have gone through. Pilots, when they refer to themselves as flying in glass cockpits, they're referring to all the computer screens that, are, that surround a pilot now in a, in a modern uh, airliner. And if you look at the, the newest, you know, the newest planes that have come out, there's, there's, it, it, it seems as, as one person uh, I quote in the book says, it's basically, you basically now have a flying computer. It's, it's all sorts of monitors, all sorts of input devices, and a lot of the responsibility of the, the pilot has become one of operating the computer rather than manually flying the plane. So you're watching what's going on on screens, you're entering data and so forth. And if you look in more and more areas of life and work, that's how people are operating. They, they are becoming computer operators, people who watch monitors, um, so, uh, you know, I mentioned medicine and law. You look at creative professions like architecture, graphic design. Um, lots of management jobs are now spent largely looking at screens and entering data and getting outputs. Uh, and then in our private lives as well, you, all you have to do is go out on the street and watch people. And more, <clears throat> excuse me, more and more, they're, they're relying on their smartphone or their computer to do everyday tasks from using GPS to get around to getting recommendations for the next movie to watch or book to read to going on, you know, dating sites to find people to date where we're, we are in a, in a sense kind of surrounding ourselves with the computer, uh, putting ourselves into this glass cockpit or glass cage. And, and we have to realize that, uh, for all the conveniences the computer can give us, it does in a sense, cut us off from the fuller world in the fuller experience that is available to us. And so if we're not careful, we begin to see some of these same effects that in the worst circumstances, pilots start to experience, which is that our perspectives narrow and our skills get duller. And instead of kind of bringing us more fully into the world and opening new possibilities, as we really want technology to do, we see the opposite effect, that the computer begins to, to limit us and in, 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 in narrow our horizons and our skills. 
you uh, you quote the columnist David Brooks. This uh, I, I laughed at his your quoting of his experience with his GPS unit, um, and in his especially in his car. And I think we, a lot of us have had this experience. Uh, you the GPS unit will take over the navigation, and he's even attracted to this uh, slightly British sounding voice. And, yes, he 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 talks about you know how. How is it, and this was several years ago. So he buys a car that has cheap navigation system, GPS. And, you know, he goes very quickly from using the, the technology in particular circumstances, you know, when, he's, when he gets lost and needs some advice on how to get to where he wanted to go or when he has to go from place to place very quickly and he's not familiar with the route. He goes from using it in particular situations to kind of turning it on immediately all the time and kind of following that. Uh, computerized voice, turn left, turn right, destination ahead. Um, and on the one hand, you know, he, he says how, how pl- pleasant it is to, to not have to worry about navigation anymore, uh, not have to look around, know where you are, know where you're going. But then he also, you know, he, he also says that there seems to be a cost here that he very quickly began to lose, lose his navigational sense and, and, and suddenly wasn't paying attention to the world around him. And I think that's a, that's a phenomenon, that's a, uh, something that a lot of us have felt, uh, that it becomes very easy to, whenever you get in your car or even when you're walking somewhere, you know, to uh, turn on GPS or pull out your smartphone and launch Google Maps or some other mapping app and kind of depend on the, the computerized instructions to get around. And on the one hand, it is convenient, uh, even though it's, as most of us know, it's not foolproof. Um, but what, what happens is we begin to uh, lose our, our connection with the place we're in. Um, and we lose our engagement with the world and uh, our sense of place. And I think that shows us that even in those cases when there's something important to a skill, a human skill, and certainly, if you if you think about our navigational sense, that's that's an elemental human skill. In fact, it's an elemental skill for pretty much any animal to know where you are, uh, to know how to get from one place to another. When we lose that, and we we seem to be very <laughs> blasé about losing it, I do think, and this kind of brings out the philosophical side of this, uh, of our dependence on computers, we lose that connection with place, that is actually very important to us. Um, and, and these subtle things that we give away when we become too dependent on technology uh, are things that actually can enrich our lives, uh, even if we underestimate their value. And, and, and so our, our reliance on GPS gives us a good example of how trading convenience for a kind of rich engagement with the world may not be the best trade-off when it comes to our own satisfaction and fulfillment with life. Where, this is a big question, of course, and this is the, you know, a central question in your book, but uh, maybe give us some parameters. How do we find the sweet spot then? You know, to take the airline example, automation has made airline travel overall safer, except in some of those cases where we have catastrophic crashes because of over-reliance on, on technology. Where, where, where's the sweet spot? Well, I mean, the first thing to realize is that over-reliance 
is not inevitable. Um, we could design autopilot systems, flight automation systems, uh, in a different way, and, and maybe not only increase the pilot's engagement with flight, but also the pilot's uh, sharpness of skills and even, you know, sense of pleasure in flying, and also actually further make uh, make make flying even safer. And I think I think the key here is to make a dis- is to distinguish between two very different design philosophies that can be used to create uh, the computer programs and the robots and the other things uh, that automate our lives. One one philosophy is what's referred to as technology-centered design, and that seems to be the dominant philosophy today. And what it means is that the software programmer or the engineer starts off by saying, well, what can a computer do? And then everything that a computer can possibly do uh, is given to the computer, is given to the um, software. And then what's left over goes to the human being, the human operator. And unfortunately, what tends to be left over tends to be things we're not very good at doing and we don't find very engaging and very satisfying. So looking at screens, uh, you know, monitoring screens, uh, computer screens for information being data entry clerks, entering information into computers. And then also, because any system, any technological system is fallible, it might break down, we're also given responsibility for taking over in emergencies, for being kind of the last line of defense. And that, unfortunately, kind of sets us up to fail. Uh, It means that we're going to tune out. We're not going to have enough to do. Our our skills are going to get rusty. And then when we do have to take over, we're going to make mistakes. The other way to think about this is what's called human-centered design, where you, where you start, if you're a programmer or a designer or engineer, by saying, what are human beings good at? What are people, uh, what are you know, the unique, distinctive talents of people? And it's things like imagination and creativity and conceptual thought and critical thought and skeptical thought. And then you build the system to make sure that we are allowed to exercise those unique skills and keep keep them sharp uh, and even, you know, reach higher levels of skill and bring in the computer to aid us. Because, of course, we're flawed, too. We have blind spots. We have biases in our thinking. And a computer can be very good at countering some of those, giving us information that we might not have taken into account. And if you, if you create a human-centered automated system, you're much more likely to get the best possible performance out of the human being while also tapping into the unique capabilities of computers. And it seems like if we shift in that direction, we're going to end up you know, building a world that is uh, <clears throat> still suited to us and still gets the most out of us while allowing us to, to also automate certain chores, certain routine activities that computers are actually better at. We're talking with Nicholas Carr on the program today. The book is The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. And uh, Nicholas Carr is uh, coming to Utah. He'll be uh, uh, here as a part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That's on October 17th, 6 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, We do have an email from uh, Andrew that we'll uh, uh, get to um, after this break. And I wanted to get into a very interesting question of ethics, morality, 
and automation. Uh, we'll just get into, uh, when we come back, this uh, quote, which uh, Mr. Carr has in his book from Gary Marcus from NYU. The arrival of autonomous vehicles would do more than signal the end of one more human niche. It would mark the start of a new era in which machines will have to have ethical systems. We'll have more following the break. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, you'll learn how Victory Gardens were used to sustain families in World War II. And if field bindweed is in every nook and cranny of your garden, find out the best way to control it. The timing is right now. You'll also hear about using the southwestern white pine in your landscape, adding the Tillandsia plant to your bathroom decor, and how to freeze fruits and vegetables for midwinter eating. That's the Zesty Garden, Thursday morning at 10 o'clock from Utah Public Radio. It's Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have another 10 minutes left with Nicholas Carr. The book is The Glass Cage, Automation, and Us. Nicholas Carr is coming to Utah as part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. His appearance is October 17th at 6 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. You're welcome to join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. The phone is 1-800-826-1495. And you can reach us by Twitter at Utah Public Radio. And we have uh, Margaret in uh, Vernal up on the telephone. Margaret, welcome to the program. Thank, thank you. Um, I'm really concerned about the, uh, the fact that we, we're losing a lot of our skills to the computer. Um, uh, for instance, not, not only the uh, technical ones. And on, uh, don't, don't get me wrong, I, I understand that the computer is a great help to many purposes. But uh, things like embroidery and knitting and um, it can all be done on a machine now and it seems that we're losing that type of um, uh, ability to do things like this to work with our hands and um, also to a certain extent with our imaginations Mr. Carr I, th- I think you, you, you address this at uh, some length in, in the book yeah, I, I think I think we're we are too quick to underestimate the the pleasures and the satisfactions that come from uh, demonstrating and in improving our own skills in doing all sorts of things, not just in in you know the kind of intellectual skills of analysis and making decisions, but in in those kind of manual skills that that do kind of provide an enormous satisfaction. We, you know, one thing I talk about are these studies, psychological studies, that, that find that we, we, we're very quick to assume we, that our lives will improve if we hand over chores and hand over effort and hand over challenges to technology and, and kind of we think we're going to free ourselves somehow. But it turns out that it's often doing hard work, uh, challenging ourselves, building our skills, that is really the source of our satisfaction uh, in living. And so we have this, uh, psychologists refer to it as miswanting. We think we, we want to be freed for lives of leisure, but then actually lives of leisure, because they lack challenge, because they don't engage us uh, very much, turn out to be kind of disappointing. And actually, uh, you know, I think that plays into our over-eagerness at times to look to the computer to do everything for us. 
Thank you, Margaret. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, just to follow up, Mr. Carr, um, I was very struck by an experience you had, which you recounted in the book. Uh, you encountered a photographer. I'm not sure where this this was. I guess he was just walking down the uh, down the road. You encountered a photographer, and, and you got talking with him. He had old-fashioned uh, technology, and he's you engaged him in conversation. He said he had gone to digital, but he but he'd gone back to the old way. Yeah, it was at, it was on a college campus. Actually, I came across him. He was doing a photo shoot for the university. Um, and I noticed he had one of those, you know, big old-fashioned film cameras. Uh, and, and so I started talking to him because he was waiting. He was actually waiting for the light to get precisely right uh, for the photograph. And he did say he had, he had, you know, as soon as digital cameras came along, he, he, he got rid of his film cameras and closed down his dark room and, and switched over. And on the one hand, he enjoyed lots of the benefits. He could take lots of shots very, very quickly. He didn't have to worry about, you know, you know, processing the film and the negatives and so forth. But then when he looked at, when he took a hard look at his work, he, he started to realize that he wasn't taking as, the photographs weren't as good to him. And also his, his pleasure in being a photographer had seemed to be reduced. And he realized it was because with, with digital film, he wasn't paying as much attention to the scene, to the techniques of photography. He just, he knew he could take a ton of of images and then pick pick out the best later on, and so he didn't. He lost his engagement with his own skill. Um, so he went back to film cameras, and and he didn't suggest that he thought all photographers should do that. He just his point was that you know you have to pay attention to how you get the best work out of yourself, how you how you do things in the most satisfying way, and don't be seduced by the every latest technology to think that the new tool is always better for you than the old tool was, because that is a, a recipe for kind of handing control to the technology rather than maintaining it for yourself. Here's an email from Andrew. Do you think that uh, the replacement of all jobs except for those of engineers is possible? Is it in the capacity of a company to simply choose that they want to employ people over robots, or is monetary cost the most powerful motive? Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, more and more jobs are, are now capable of being taken over by either robots or by software, computer software. And obviously, companies have always invested in automation and mechanization to save money, uh, to reduce their need to hire workers, to enhance, improve their labor productivity. Um, but we're getting to a point now where we're seeing, uh, you know, some 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 very worrying trends in the as we begin to to turn over more and more well-paying, good middle-class jobs, white-collar jobs, professional jobs to computers, and. There is a real question, you know, if we continue down this path, are we going to erode the middle class? Are we even going to start seeing a loss in very highly skilled type jobs that used to, uh, you know, be very well paid? And, and there, there are, if you look at how our tax system um, are, is uh, set up, other things that, other laws and so forth, there are, we give some advantages to companies for investing in software and other machinery for automating work, and we may want to start thinking about those, those type of incentives that give an advantage to computers over people. Is that really in our best economic interest, in our best uh, interest as a society going forward, or 
do we want to make sure that we at least <laughs> give human beings a level playing field in competing for jobs? Because I, I think it I think the question goes beyond efficiency and cost saving to the question of, you know, are we going to maintain the kind of human skills and human input and human creativity that ultimately makes us more competitive, uh, more ingenious, more innovative, or are we going to sacrifice all that because a robot is a bit quicker and, and more precise in doing routine chores? We are uh, nearing the end of the program, but I, I did want to get this in. I uh, promised that we would. Um, this idea, and this is chapter eight, titled Your Inner Drone, very interesting. You talk about ethics and morality, and, uh, and can robots, can autonomous machines make these decisions? I wonder if you could recreate for me the, the scenario that you have at the beginning of the chapter. You're, you're in an autonomous car, a driverless car. You're enjoying the ride, maybe checking your messages, yeah. and then a dog appears on the road. Right. It's... If we're going to create autonomous robots, self-driving cars, they're going, to run, they're going to confront situations, as we do, where there's moral ambiguity. So if you think of yourself being in a driverless car, the, car is, the, the software is making all the decisions, uh, you're driving home, say, and all of a sudden a neighbor's pet runs into the road right in front of you. Well, the automobile itself, the software at least, is going to have to decide how to react. Is it going to run over the dog? Is it going to swerve uh, and possibly put, you know, put yourself into danger? Uh, these kind of moral decisions that we make, we're going to have to start programming computers to make. And that raises the question, you know, whose morality gets programmed into the computer and who gets to decide which morality gets programmed into the computer? And it's a very tricky uh, very tricky questions that we haven't really grappled with yet. And the, and you you say the military is ahead of us on thinking about this, um, and that uh, lethal the LARs lethal automated robots are technically feasible, but they haven't been implemented yet. These would be ro- you know lethal robots that would have to make some of these decisions. Yes, if you can ima- imagine drone. Currently, you know when drones fire uh, missiles, it's a human being looking at a video feed that is actually making the decision to fire. It is possible to create a software program that makes that decision, you know, at the very moment based on what the, the, the sensors on the plane is saying, and it's possible to do that with a, with a terrestrial kind of robot soldier as well. And here, too, you get all sorts of very, very difficult questions about when to fire and when not to fire, that if a computer is going to do it, if a robot is going to do it, it has to be programmed into that robot, and it raises those similar questions. How do, if we don't even know really how our own moral sense arrives and how we develop our own moral sense, and obviously different people have different ethics, how do we, make, how do we turn that into a computer program uh, without losing something you know, something very important to our sense of uh, of ourselves as moral beings. And we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, much else to read in the book. The book is The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. Nicholas Carr is the author, and he's coming to Utah. He'll uh, be in Utah on October 17th at 6 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library as part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. Uh, Mr. Carr, thank you so much for taking time with us. 
Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll be talking with uh, William Alexander. Uh, He has uh, something of a uh, George Plimpton career going. Uh, His latest uh, book is Flirting with French, How a Language Charmed Me, Seduced Me, and Nearly Broke My Heart. Mr. Alexander is uh, 59. He he wants to not only learn French, he wants to be French. But uh, French turns out to be much, much harder to learn than he thought. Very humorous uh, tale and interesting as well. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. Several months ago, a disturbing YouTube clip made its way onto the internet and, as is always the case, went viral. The incident recorded was a school bus fight, an almost deadly beating of a young boy by three older ones. The bus driver, a 64-year-old man, appeared unwilling, even scared, to step in to stop the fight, although he can be heard above the yelling and screaming, demanding the aggressor stop hitting the boy and sit down. Many folks at the time accused the bus driver of dereliction of duty for not acting more aggressively by pulling the boys off their victim. In fact, his case was sent to the Florida State Attorney's Office, which finally decided not to file child neglect charges against him. According to the school bus driver's code, if trouble erupts, a bus driver need only call dispatch to put in a 911 call, and he did that. Now, flashback about 40 years. My father, having recently retired after 30 years as an officer in the U.S. Air Force, was moping around the house, hating that he hadn't anything real to do. Sympathetic to his situation, my mother suggested he look for a part-time job so he wouldn't feel so out of sorts, and he agreed that was a great idea. After looking around, he found a job as a school bus driver for the local Phoenix School District. The hours were good, working mornings and afternoons, with most of the day free for swimming, puttering, reading, and relaxing. My father approached the job with a certain military attitude. The children were to behave on the bus. There was to be no bullying or fighting and no yelling. He expected, nay, demanded, that all his passengers be courteous and well-behaved, or else. All went smoothly for the first semester, but the following semester, as summer approached, a few boys grew restive and decided to test the old man, to see what he'd do if they pulled something. They started out with small things, not letting friends sit together, demanding money to be let alone, leaving the bus to follow other kids and harass them on their way home. My father took all this in and then called a powwow with the troublemakers. He ordered them to stop their shenanigans or he'd punish them. And just how was he going to do that, they sneered. After all, he was just a lowly bus driver. Poor dears, they were unaware of his military grit, his World War II experience, his dedication to integrity and honor. In short, they were unaware that they were messing with my dad. Needless to say, once the cat was out of the bag, they upped the ante. The teasing, harassing, and bad behavior not only continued, it grew worse. My father, a patient man, waited for his chance. One really, really hot Phoenix afternoon, on a lonely stretch of road between subdivisions, my dad abruptly stopped the school bus and demanded the miscreants get off. Though surprised, they refused. He stood up and approached them and told them again to get off now or he'd throw them off. Realizing he was serious and could easily do it, they quickly skedaddled. He left them in a cloud of bus exhaust, stranded on the side of a desert road in 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Was he fired? Was he even chastised? Not at all. In fact, he was sure the boys never even told anyone such was their embarrassment. But the word got around the schoolyards because the other bus riders talked. And my dad, for the remainder of his bus driving days, never again had a discipline problem. Oh, the times.
and how they have changed. This is Gina Wickwar. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.